0: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my articles. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition was recorded last week at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where I met up with General John Allen, who is currently head of the Brookings Institution in Washington, which is a think tank. But before that, he had a long military career, which included periods commanding NATO forces in Afghanistan and running CENTCOM, which is the US military command in the Middle East and covers Iraq and Iran. With tensions rising once again between America and Iran and fears increasing about the future of Afghanistan, it was a perfect time to sit down with General Allen. He's a firm believer in the importance of continued American involvement in the Middle East, but I put it to him that many Americans are sick of what President Trump calls endless wars, and that their attitude to the Middle East could be summed up as, let's just get out of there.
1: Let's just get out of there beans. some more ISIS, uh, some more al-Qaeda, and some more of whatever's next. Uh, let's just get out of there means it expands the capacity and the open space within which the Iranians can expand their influence. Let's just get out of there means it, it permits the Russians to have a free hand in the Middle East at the expense of American influence, which has widely and broadly stabilized the Middle East for so long. And so let's just get out of there means let's cede the field to many different malfactors in that region that, first of all, bear us no goodwill. And second of all, don't have the inherent interests of the populations there at heart. So, look, we all get the fact that this term endless wars seems to have some political purchase in the United States. But let's, let's remember what an endless war really is. We have been in Korea since the end of the Korean War in 1953. We're still at war on that peninsula. We only have an armistice. But we went from a country that had virtually no political capacity and an economy flat on its back to being one of the great functional democracies on the planet, with an economy that ranks in the top 15 on the Earth. Look at what has become of Japan after a long-term American presence. Look at what became of Taiwan after a long-term American presence. Look at Europe after a long-term coalition presence. So this this idea of endless wars, uh, we need to make sure that we're clear on what we mean. Endless fighting with no definitive outcome is wrong, and we should oppose it, and we should never sign up to it. But a long-term American presence in Afghanistan to give the Afghans the capacity to take charge of their security situation, upon which then we would build long-term representative government and a credible economic capacity that can uh, provide uh, context for the emerging youthful population of Afghanistan. A long-term American presence there after the end of this conflict that takes on a presence akin to what we've done in South Korea or Japan. You know, people say, how long should we stay there? My answer is, I don't know how long we should stay there. But the potential of the Afghan people, the potential for the Afghan economy, and certainly we know what will happen in Afghanistan if it falls back into the hands of the Taliban and a radicalized population. It will not be good for the West. It will not be good for Europe. It will not be good for the United States. We need to be clear about our terms and not let jingoism, these endless wars,
0: define our thinking in a rational, strategic way. But to push back a bit, I guess people would say, well, General, you know, you were one of a number of people who was in Afghanistan for some years, But America went in in 2003, which is now almost 20 years later, and if you haven't succeeded now, you're never going to succeed. Well, tell me what
1: success means. And the answer for success is a stabilized country that is not a platform for the launching of global terrorism, and a country that has the capacity to govern itself with a functioning economy and a security force that prevents the resurgence of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban creating a platform for the export of terrorism. I don't know how long that will take, but I'm not... Interested in just the needless expenditure of life and treasure we need to have objectives And what's important is that these are political decisions that have extended these wars not the desires of the generals And certainly not the desires of the privates And I just spoke to some troops the other day who were on their way to part of the Middle East One of them has had 19 tours in Afghanistan and Iraq 19 tours since 2001 and he's not uncommon You know, we have five, six, seven, eight tours is just a regular business. And the same people go back over and over again. In the United States, we fought two wars and had a major presence in East Asia on the backs of less than 1% of the population in the United States. That's a heck of a lot to ask from a very small segment of the American population. So when people talk about ending endless wars, we all want the end of endless wars. But let's ensure that we have clear objectives in our minds with how we want this war to look as it concludes. Because if we don't have clear objectives, and they start with political objectives and then from there you take the political objectives and you render them into campaign plans, if we don't have clear political objectives, then guess what you get? You get an endless war. And it's not for the military, and I'm not blaming the politicians, what I'm saying is you've got to have clear strategic political objectives so that you know what success looks like, so that you can begin ultimately to transition the conflict to a sustained presence that isn't at war, a sustained presence that's engaged, and this is a key point, moving from a security-related strategy to a stability-related strategy. And this is where I think we have had uh, difficulty in the West doing that. We do decisive operations very well, But it's the end of the operation. It is the time when we should be stabilizing the population where we pull out too quickly and then many
0: of the things that need to be addressed in the aftermath of the conflict go unaddressed. So you make a very passionate case for why the U.S. should not pull out prematurely on the grounds that we want to get out of endless wars. But are you concerned that whatever you think is right, in reality, the West, led by America will pull out of Afghanistan prematurely and the place will slide backwards.
1: I worry about that. I have to. I don't think that the direction of the the previous effort in the peace plan that was being led by the United States, I think that process had some very serious flaws in it. And I'm very careful about saying that because good people on our side were deeply committed to doing as good a job as they possibly could. But the end state, we have to be realistic about this. We were never successful in separating the Taliban. From Al-Qaeda. Those have been strategic allies for a very long time. And one of our principal demands of the Taliban in being willing to accept a peace process was that the Taliban had to sever its relationship with Al-Qaeda. Now, privately, the Taliban were saying to us, are you guys crazy? Do you really think after all this time when under 150,000 troops you couldn't make us do it, that we'll do it now? I mean, that's one of the first flaws. What becomes of civil society in Afghanistan? Now I had a lot of troops tragically killed under my command and many thousand troops wounded. And there isn't a day that goes by, not one day, Gideon, that goes by I don't think about those kids. But when I think about the peace plan, the first face that appears in my mind are the faces of Afghan women and all that they have been able to achieve under the protection of the West's presence in Afghanistan, not just because we protected the process of the emergence of a credible civil society and the role of women, but because we also worked very hard with the Afghan government to accept the fact that even in a traditional society, they can never hope to move from being a post-conflict society to a developing society unless women are in the mainstream. And I have no reason to believe that the Taliban, who the women in Afghanistan call the darkness when they were dominating the country, I have no reason to believe That they will ever treat the Afghan women with the kinds of deference and respect and work to their betterment to improve their place in Afghan society than we did in the West. We paid a hell of a price for that in some respects. We should be very proud about where Afghan women are and the numbers of girls that are in schools and the extension of life expectancy and the reduction in the numbers of children that die at birth and the mothers that pass with them and the expansion of education and the expansion of medical care for the Afghan society. None of that would ever have happened if we had not intervened in that country. One other point, as we were moving into the process of the final political diplomatic agreements with Afghanistan, the uh, military relationship, I remember the very first negotiating session we had where both sides read their opening statements. It was an emotional moment for the Afghans. and It was an emotional moment for us because the Afghans said to us for centuries, We engaged and defeated every foreign power that ever came to Afghanistan. Now we are asking one to stay. Now that's a very powerful endorsement of their sense that their future was with the coalition, their future was with the West. And we've got to be very careful in the peace agreement that we undertake. First of all, the last peace agreement cut the Afghan government out of the conversation. It was a bilateral U.S.-Taliban agreement. I think that's a recipe for disaster.
0: And the president, as we know, actually wanted to fly the Taliban to talk directly to him at campaign? Yeah, well, we have those moments in our American political environment these days. Are you worried, though, that it is conceivable that at some point the Taliban might be back running that country? Could that ever happen?
1: I don't know that they would be running the country, but I could see the Taliban potentially having enormous influence in parts of the country.
0: Just one last topic, but it's another very much in the news at the moment. Iran. What was your reaction when you heard that Soleimani had been killed by a drone strike?
1: Now, his getting killed that day in Iraq was not the first time we had him in our gun sight. But on those occasions when the U.S. had a crack at him, there was always a conscious decision-making process. Is it more important for the stability of the region that, at a strategic level, he remain alive? Or is there an immediate tactical advantage to him being killed? And so each one of those decisions was different. Each one of those decisions led ultimately to the decision that he should remain alive. Well, for a variety of reasons, intelligence that I think we still don't fully understand, the decisions made by the President of the United States to kill Qasem Soleimani. I couldn't believe it when I heard
0: it. Not because he didn't deserve it, not because I'm a bit sorry that he's gone. He's
1: got the blood of not just hundreds of American troops on his hands, but thousands in the region. But there were big considerations involved here. In the United States, we had issues associated with the president notifying the Congress. Well, he notified Republicans, but he didn't notify Democrats. It was not entirely clear what the intelligence was that prompted it. And we were told that he was going to blow up the American embassy in Baghdad. Well, if anyone's ever seen the American embassy in Baghdad, it's a city. So I don't know what that means. And then we were told it's four embassies. And then we were told it was imminent. And then we were told it was gonna happen within days. Then we were told it was gonna happen within months. And look, I don't think that there was ever a moment when Qasem Soleimani wasn't plotting the, the demise of Americans or our partners, the UK or somebody else in the region. I don't know what was different about this time, except that we got a clear shot at him and we took it. So the problems, of course, had emerged from that. We killed him in a sovereign country, supposedly our ally, Iraq. We not only killed him, but we killed Abu Mehdi al-Muhandis, who was not just the commander of Kitab Hezbollah, which is one of the worst of the Shia militias supported by Iran and Qasem Soleimani. He was also the deputy chairman of something called the Shabi. It's also known as the PMF, or the Popular Mobilization Force, which was called into action, sort of like in, in American tradition, the Minutemen, but they were called forth at this moment of desperate crisis when the Islamic State was attacking in 2014. And these patriotic Iraqis came from all over the country, but mostly the Shia South. They were organized loosely into these formations led by Hadi al-Amri, Mohandas, supported by the Iranians, and off they went to try to stop the Islamic State from taking Baghdad. So in one stroke, we killed the second most powerful person in Iran. And we killed a major recognizable figure in Iraq. And again, a terrorist, from my perspective, commanding Qatab Hezbollah. But we did it on Iraqi soil. We didn't coordinate with Iraqis, which enraged the Council of Representatives in Baghdad, which voted us out. And at this juncture, I don't think we fully appreciate where we are with respect to our long-term presence in, in Iraq. So, I want to be very careful about second-guessing the commander-in-chief. You know, he had intelligence none of us have had, but we've not really gotten the explanation that I think many of us would like to have had to understand why that remarkable moment was necessary at that particular time. Some Americans are saying, in the end, whether we killed him because he was going to blow up an embassy or not, it has restored deterrence.
0: deterrence. So where do you stand between the group that says, you know, however Trump arrived at this decision... It has pushed Iran backwards. It sent a message to the regime they can't get away with what they're getting away with in the region. And the second group you say actually was a grossly responsible act which makes the war between Iran and the United States more likely. Now those are both either extremes of the spectrum. Where would you put it in the balance?
1: Yeah, it's hard to uh, find myself on any part of the ground between those two poles. I would simply say a couple of things. I think that In Tehran, it is widely recognized with the supreme leader, with the existing government, and certainly with the military and security officials, that a conventional conflict with the United States could almost certainly result in regime change. And so it is in their interests to limit this conflict right now as much as it possibly can, to limit the potential that this could escalate and spiral out of control. And I had not an insignificant amount to do with the contingency planning in the event that it did spiral out of control, and I will simply tell you, the president is holding all of the cards in a conventional fight. We have enormous capacity to do great damage to the Iranian symmetric war machine, conventional war machine. But that's never been where the Iranians operated typically anyway. So yes, you're right, and those who are observing this are right, I think the Iranians will take a huge step back right now try to buy some time and space from the moment of that attack and the death of the number two figure, if you will, really significant figure, to take stock of the region, to get a sense of where they are in their current operations and their relationships with the Syrians and relationships with the Lebanese, the relationship with the Houthis, who were still at war with the Saudi coalition in uh, Yemen. But I think over the long term, we will eventually see reprisals and we will see retribution And it will take the form of that which we would have anticipated the Iranians to do all along anyway, which will be terrorism, kidnapping, stimulating militia activity. I think that we, by virtue of the decision the president made with regard to Syria and the U.S. presence in Syria, we ceded that ground in large measure to Bashar al-Assad, the Russians, and the Iranians. It preserves Iran's land bridge across Baghdad and across Iraq and across Syria to continue to supply Lebanese Hezbollah, which is a major threat to our real ally in the region, which is Israel. We've got partners in the region, but we have one real ally, and that's Israel. And so it preserves the capacity of Iran to continue to strengthen Lebanese Hezbollah. And by the way, Qasem Soleimani was a key figure in the 06 war where Israel found it so difficult to deal in Lebanon with Hezbollah. So I think Israel's security is diminished as a result of this. And I think that uh, the Iranians will take stock of their relationships in those countries. I don't think we'll see a major change in their behavior in any of those countries. Because even though the United States wants to limit Iranian influence, killing Qasem Soleimani is not going to limit that influence. The number two in the Quds Force stepped up, Ismail Ghani, who's been in that portfolio and working number two uh, for almost two decades, maybe even longer than two decades. So none of this is a mystery to him. And I think in many respects he's going to get his legs up under him, the Iranians are going to take uh, view of the region, and I suspect we will see a continuation of their destabilizing behavior and perhaps an expansion of terrorism activities in the region aimed directly now at the
0: United States and, and our partners and allies. Without a rather gloomy thought, I think we'll have to end it for now. But thank you for a fascinating conversation. I hope we'll have other occasions to talk.
1: I do as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you for much. your
0: good work. And that's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash rachman review. Until next week, goodbye.